Welcome to the Frontline Founders Podcast. Today's guest is Michael Madden, the founder and CEO of Preta. Previously, Michael was the CEO and founder of Atata, a security awareness and cyber risk management platform that helps customers combat security breaches caused by employee mistakes or human error. Mimecast acquired Atata and Michael served as the SVP and general manager for security awareness and threat intelligence products at Mimecast. Before founding Atata, Michael served as the vice president for business development at Red Owl, a cybersecurity company which was acquired by Forcepoint. Previous to that, he was a senior leader in the Treasury Department. A current Army reservist, Michael spent nearly a decade on active duty. He holds an MBA from Wharton, a policy master's from Columbia, and an undergraduate degree from Cornell. Michael, welcome to Frontline Founders, a podcast miniseries that showcases military veterans who have gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies. Well, Rennie, thank you so much uh, for, for having me and for also having this podcast. I think it's tremendously important to highlight uh, veterans and entrepreneurship, and I think this effort is is terrific. So thank you for doing it. Thanks, Michael. Let's start briefly before we go back to your military service and, and the call to serve with what do you do today as CEO and founder of, of Preta, and correct my pronunciation as I'm, if I am off, in your own words? Yeah. So, no, you're spot on. We have a thing with ending our companies with uh, two A's. So um, uh, I'm currently, as, as you were mentioning, uh, the CEO of Preta um, and responsible for the overall success of the business. We are, are very much in startup mode. Uh, and the the purpose of, of this company uh, really is to enhance uh, sales and customer support to better close deals and reduce churn uh, in this post-COVID area. So uh, in this era that we're in where the in-person meeting is, is dying, uh, we hope to change that dynamic of, of that difficult relationship and provide sales and customer support with the information they need to do uh, to do their jobs. So that's what I'm doing uh, today. And you know, I often get the question of how do you spend your day as a as a CEO? And and Rennie, as you know, the 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 answer is always I, I'm not sure. <laughs> the days the days go by very very quickly uh, uh, from uh, meetings on big strategy to minutia. And I think that's. Um, uh, and all the while, uh, motivating, uh, motivating, and, and uh, developing teams. So that's uh, what I do on a daily basis. Thank you for for sharing that and the the varied roles of uh, of a, a startup founder and and CEO. Let's let's talk about your call to serve and you view service broadly. So you've served in a variety of capacities, but. To talk about your your initial time in service and then the call to serve as a an army officer. Yeah, sure. So it uh, I, I blame my father. Um, so I, I grew up uh, in New York in uh, Rye and then Scarsdale, the, the home of uh, the Diet, of those of you who remember, and paddle tennis. Um, and uh, since as long as I could remember, I was just uh, enraptured with my father's stories about his time in the Peace Corps when. Uh, President Kennedy made the call. He was one of the first to raise his hand. And just hearing the stories of, of his service and what it meant to him to, to be part of something greater than himself in service of the country, 
just really captured captured my imagination. So uh, at Cornell, I full disclosure, I would make fun of the ROTC folks. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd ever wear a uniform. There was nothing further. I was an English major at Cornell, and there was nothing further from my mind than joining the military. And and I think that is a somewhat of a theme uh, and an important point. I think is that um, for those uh, you know who are currently in the military and thinking about entrepreneurship. I, I, you know, I hope uh, I, along with others that are on this podcast, you know, can can demonstrate the fact that you never know uh, what's going to happen next, and and uh, that you know this country truly is a miraculous place like that. So anyway, I was making fun of ROTC uh, cadets, and while I was doing that, I joined. Uh, I still raised my hand uh, and joined the Peace Corps. So I served in the Peace Corps uh, as a volunteer in Kyrgyzstan which of course would later play a, a, a pivotal role in the war uh, in Afghanistan uh, as, a, as an air base. Uh, but back then it was in the mid nineties uh, and I, I taught English in an orphanage. Um, and after my time in the Peace Corps, I traveled to Moscow and I was, uh, I went to school at Moscow State and I was really wondering what to do next. And I still wanted to serve and I wasn't sure how to articulate that and what to, and how to express that. And I met a Marine um, at a at a pretty famous uh, expat bar, uh, and he he swept me up in the honor and and in uh, and in the opportunity of serving my country, continuing to serve my country uh, in the military. So I uh, came back to the states and 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 take us yeah t- take us back, Michael. What 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 time frame is this, and and where was this uh, encounter with the Marines yeah, so that inspired I, you? The, the irony. So the the place was called the Hungry Duck, and for anyone in Moscow in the mid nineties, this place was a legendary expat uh, bar. It was off the off the chart crazy Moscow expat um, event space, and. Uh, I met uh, this Marine who was there and, you know, we started talking and I said, I just served in the Peace Corps, but I, I, I still I still wanted to serve my country and I couldn't quite figure it out. Um, and of course, he did. Uh, he started recruiting me almost immediately and into what the military meant for him uh, and how it helped shape his life and add structure and meaning to it. Uh, so when I mm. came back, you probably don't even know this, Rennie, but when I came back to New York, uh, my, my folks lived on, on the Upper West Side at that point, and I was going to join the Navy and uh, uh, be mm. an officer in the Navy, went to a really fancy office, and I said I wanted to be a surface warfare officer. I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. I mean, it's the Navy and it's boats. So what's the center of that? That seems like that's surface war. I think I should be a surface warfare officer. They had me take all these tests and these flight tests, and and they said uh, no. I, when I came to like sign on the dotted line, they said you're going to be a navigator. And I was like, wait, 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 what the hell's a navigator? Like you know, Top Gun, like you're goose. And I was like, I, I, that's that's going to be a terrible job. Like I'm not, I'm going to like I'm not supposed to do that. So I said, you're not going to let me walk out. And they said, yeah, go ahead, walk out. So I did, and I walked uptown uh, across to Lincoln Center where there's now, it was a pet store. I don't know what it is now, but back then it was a recruiting shop. And I walked in and said, I want to enlist in the army. And um, that that day they, they looked, I had all the tests from the Navy. They accepted it all and said, what do you want? And I said, I, I just give me a combat arm and I'm 
and I'm good to go. And so they, they said, okay, we need artillery people. So I said, that's like big gun things, right? <laughs> I said, yep. I said, sign me up. So I went home. My parents were all excited for me to be a naval officer. And I said, actually, uh, I just, you know, I'm going to enlist in the army. And so that was, that was the beginning. Amazing. Amazing. And talk us through some of your duty stations or, or yeah, some sure. of your roles, because I believe they, they evolved in the army and maybe we'll keep it for now, Michael, to the, the active duty time. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up later on your, your continued service, but to talk through some of the, the, the highlights of that nearly decade as, as an active duty um, in the army. Yeah, I think I was very, well, I don't think I was very, very fortunate in, in that um, I've, I found speaking with, with other uh, you know, veterans that there's always, you know, your first unit is the unit that really forges who you are in the military and, and what right looks like for you. And I was incredibly fortunate in that my first unit uh, was the 82nd Airborne. And being part of that unit wrapped me in, in, a, in a family and a community and filled me with a sense of such pride and duty. And also what right looks like, like what the army, what the core of the army is, uh, you know, of, of the big army. And it laid the foundations for who I am today. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I evolved in the, in the army, um, and moved from, from different positions further and further <laughs> away from the field and closer and closer to a, de to a desk. Um, but I always had, uh, those, those bricks and, and mortar from the 82nd about what it's, you know, what it's really like, uh, to serve on the, on the front lines and to be with, um, and to be among soldiers. Uh, and to be in that unit, that story mm -hmm. unit. So that was my first unit, uh, and that's really the the unit uh, that I carry that I carry with me uh, till this day. Um, when I uh, became an officer, I went back to school uh, and then became uh, an armor officer. I was in the first cab at Fort Hood, uh, and then I switched over to become a military intelligence officer. Uh, and there uh, I served a, a number of roles. I was very fortunate. I had a, a, a really interesting uh, deployment in the Middle East uh, as both a counterintelligence and a human officer. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine this today. I was very fortunate to be able to do both of those jobs at the same time. And the, the thing right. I'll highlight about that is what, what military intelligence afforded me was the joy of independent work. The, the joy of, of being hmm. on my hmm. own and having to make hmm. very quick, rapid decisions that I knew would have lasting impact um, without much of a structure. You know, the army really entrusted me with quite a bit um, when, when I was deployed. And I'm very grateful for that because it, it helped, I think, give me the confidence that I needed when I was going off on my own that this was something I could do. And, and, the, uh, and when I left the active duty army and went to the treasury department, those lessons that I learned, you know, that were, that, that were basically founded in the 82nd and then expressed, I think when I was deployed, served me really well uh, at the treasury department. And then, you know, when I became an entrepreneur. 
Right, right. And 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 Michael, your your army time, your active duty time from from what I remember started during the the 90s. Yeah. There were there were, you know, there was still Bosnia Kosovo, but this was an era of an era of uh of of peace dividend. But but then, you know, 9/11 and and you and I are both native New Yorkers, so so obviously very affecting to both of us, but that occurred during your your army time. Could could you just you know, maybe we'll conclude your your active duty service just by g- giving us a a little bit of a a, a timeline. W- when were you know what? How many years post nine eleven were you active duty, and, and then bleed that in perhaps to the decision to then go to Treasury? Yeah, so I I enlisted in ninety seven, um, and then I did a, the green to gold uh, program, which allowed me to go back to grad school. So I went to Columbia. Uh, got I was commissioned out of St. John's University because Columbia didn't have ROTC at the time. Uh, during September 11th, I was downtown in New York. I was actually headed to uh, get my orders at Fort Hamilton, um, which is where I was enlisted. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the night at Fort Hamilton, uh, September 11th. And then September 12th, I took the, um, the L train back into Manhattan and saw the smoldering buildings and spent about a month or so, a little longer, um, at ground zero and talk about, uh, you know, an experience that cements <laughs> your, your passion for service. Uh, you know, my hometown was hit, uh, and, um, and I saw the repercussions of that. And so, uh, transitioning from, from there to, to Fort hood and, and serving in armor, uh, and then intelligence, uh, until 2006 was, was pretty, uh, was not really much of a decision for me. In fact, I felt very lucky that I had, that I, that I was in the military. Um, and I felt very grateful. You were already in the military. Yeah. I felt very grateful (laughs) that I was already there. So that was 2006. So in 2006, I got back from the middle East, um, and I, uh, joined the treasury department. I actually found the the job on, uh, my wife actually found it on USA jobs. Uh, and they said that there were these, that this new treasury department had this Intel shop. Um, and you know, when I landed there, the reason why I took that job is I, I was the interview process. It was very clear to me that this was a new, it was almost like a new company. It was a new office. It had just gotten funding, hmm. just appropriated from Congress a few years prior. It was building it. It was really defining an industry, um, really wrapping its head around like, what are these sanctions and how can we use them and, and how can they be a stronger arm of foreign policy? But I found myself surrounded by, you know, as we would say in Boston, now that I've been here for two years, wicked smart people. Um, but what they didn't have and what there was lacking at the time uh, was real leadership. You know, it was a whole bunch of incredibly hmm. smart people, like way brighter. I was definitely not the smartest person in the room there by any by any measure. But what I did have was experience um, both being led by great leaders and and leading teams. And that experience of leadership and and of of the confidence that a person gets from serving in leadership and in and in positions of, of following within the military uh, put me in a very different path. And I credit that a hundred percent. Like it is absolutely the mil- my military experience that I credit for moving up the ranks very quickly at Treasury to become a career deputy assistant secretary. So I, right. I was the senior career uh, person, you know, running, uh, helping run that shop. And I credit that rise uh, 
absolutely to the military in my experience there. And that was that was another good chunk of time. Is that right? From 06 or 07 until about 2013, 14. 14. So that's that right. Was, I mean, that's right. So, so, so you really saw that. I mean, you, you saw that organization go from being nascent, just appropriated funding for to what it became over those seven, that's eight right. years. I mean, a funny anecdotal there. story I like to, to tell about it is when I uh, I was also being recruited by a, a three-letter agency that you can guess what it is. And when I said, actually, I'm going to the Treasury Department, they said, look, that I, to the Intel shop, they said, they don't have an Intel shop. And I said, no, no, I think they do. They said, no, they don't. We'll give you a month to sort of figure it out. And, um, you know, you can always come back to, you can come back to us. And a month went by and I said, I love it here and I'm going to stay. But part of my job at Treasury was to educate the rest of the intelligence community on the existence of Treasury, that we were that we were somebody. Uh, and of course, the uh, where, you know, the end of that story uh, is that at the end of my time, the uh, our, my boss at Treasury ultimately became the number two at uh, at CIA um, and is now the number two at CIA today. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we went from a, a small little startup with like 30 people uh, to an institution within the intelligence community that that is that is now used as uh, an important you know, policy instrument. Right. And and certainly remains even more relevant today right. in, in, in 2021. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, you, you all built it. Still, you know, now some years later, very, very relevant today. Michael, as you left your time in service as a in the Peace Corps, Army enlisted, Army officer, and and you were, you know, to be clear, you'd graduated college before you had enlisted in, in, in the Army, Army enlisted, Army officer, Treasury, individual contributor up to being a deputy assistant secretary, which is a, a very senior role uh, in 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 the government at, at the treasury department, you, you, you took a deep breath and said, what am I going to do next? You had a, a, a year or two before striking out on your own to be the, the founder and, and CEO of Atata. What was your decision-making process as you thought about leaving treasury leaving a, a, a senior post at, at still a, a relatively young age for that level of job. H how did you think about what to do now that it wasn't pure ser service anymore? Yeah. So there was obviously a lot of different equations I had in my head and, and different inputs that I had. But I think what I'd like to share is sort of two. One was an emotional one. And the emotional feeling was, I, I, I actually hearkened back to September 11th, uh, looking at those smoldering buildings and realized that I wanted to be part of that American dream as well. That I had you know, served my country on active duty. I served my country in the treasury department. And I wanted to understand the other side of that table. Like what, what was I protecting? What is that American dream? And I I, it was almost it was an irreverent pull to to that feeling. It wasn't logical. 
Um, I, I'd love to say it was like super well thought out and I'll sort of get to my thinking process, but it was a visceral feeling I had and, and uh, that it was pulling me toward this American dream. And like, what was that? I wanted to understand that. I wanted to live that. I wanted to be a part of, of that. Um, and, and a reverent pull is, is really, I think the way that I can best describe that. So one was that, this just visceral feeling that I wanted to be part of that American dream and to live, live that and be on the other side of that equation. The other was, okay, so what does that mean? So many of my counterparts were moving, were, 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 had left treasury and went to big banks uh, or worked in big compliance shops. And that was a very natural move. To, to be clear, though, the roles they had at big banks were more in that middle or back office, not as investment bankers per se, but as leading the important, but more back office compliance type function. Is that fair? Completely, completely fair. Um, yes. And they were big banks. They were big organizations. And while Treasury may seem from the outside to be big, I mean, the organization I was in, the Intel shop within Treasury is tiny. I mean, it was tiny compared to, I mean, this wasn't the mint, right? We're talking about, uh, you know, a few hundred people, uh, you know, in the hundreds, that, that's it. So it's a very small kind of elite group. Um, and the, what the, pri I, I want, so I wanted to be in the private sector. I was being called to that, but I, but it, when I was speaking with these larger banks and institutions, I was it was falling flat. It wasn't authentic to me. It wasn't answering this visceral need. And I kind of drew this graph in my head, which I, which I share with, with people. So I'll try to do it on, on this call. And it's hard a little bit because it's oral, not visual. It's a lot easier visual. But if you just think of an X and Y axis and on the X axis, you have time. And on the right axis, on the, on the Y axis, you have um, people. And you think of like an S curve of, of the life cycle of a company. And I began to think, you know, where to, on this S curve of a life cycle of time and number of people in a company, where do I want to be? And I think most people, when they're thinking about changing a big change, like move, going from active duty military into the, uh, the private sector, often people think about industry. What industry do I want to be in? And I'm, yes, continue to think about that. I think industry is obviously very, very important, but that never gets short shrift. What does get short shrift is where in the life cycle do I want to be in it? Where in a company's life cycle do I want to be? And that is a question that I think gets very short shrift. And if there's any takeaway from, from our call that I could give to you know, veterans who are thinking about transitioning to entrepreneurship, I would say really ask around and, and get as much, as many experiences as you can from people who've been in various places within the life cycle of a company. Uh, everything from like where you were, Rennie, with Red Owl, you know, you know, three veterans in a garage or, or, or me and Atata with three veterans or two veterans, you know, two people in a garage to uh, IBM. Right. I mean, somewhere between, you know, a person in a garage and IBM, that is the life cycle of a company. And where where do you not you Ray, but right, where where do you fit? You know, the veteran out there, like where in that S curve 
do you think you you can be and be happy? And there's trade-offs everywhere on that curve. There's risk trade-offs, there's salary trade-offs, there's lifestyle trade-offs, there's empowerment trade-offs, there's where are you at the table payoffs, all along that curve. And the, the lower you go on the curve, the more dramatic it is. Like the difference between a 100-person company and a 20-person company is huge, as we know, the between or or the difference between you know a ten thousand person company and a five thousand person company probably isn't that big, but the difference between like twenty and a hundred is enormous. Or the difference between the difference between two people, right, Atata, to growing it to twenty, then twenty to a hundred. That that's a very yes astute point, and I am. I am glad you mentioned it on this podcast. That that is a key takeaway that I hope people will uh, will will really think about because it, it's not now that you say it, it is such great advice, but it's it's not always as intuitive. That and also I'd like to highlight giving yourself enough room to to do something that is authentic, and this is whether you're leaving after four years, one tour is an enlisted or an officer, or after 15 years, 25 years, whatever it is, if it, if it doesn't feel right, it may not, it, it probably won't be right. And, and, and seeking out and and getting that advice is, uh, is, is critical. So thank you for sharing that, that bit of, 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 of wisdom. Um, Obviously people have, as you said, their risk trade-offs, there are Maybe people were starting new families when they were leaving right. the, their service time, right? And, right. and that, uh, you, how much risk can you bear? And and it is no joke to be to be a startup, a literal startup entrepreneur. So, Michael, talk about that decision then to to join to join a early stage company as opposed to say a five to ten thousand person company. Yeah. Right when you left, and 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 then Atata, which is your you were the CEO founder, had great success, a really novel concept, acquired by by a great company where where you then were an executive. But what was the decision making process right out of Treasury? Yeah, so um, I'm a firm believer that if you know what you want, the universe will conspire to help you, and. The challenge that I was having was I wasn't quite sure what I wanted. And with the framework that I just described about that S-curve, I began to whittle it down. And I remember we had, I had, um, I would, I was speaking with anyone who would listen, trying to refine what it was that, that I was really looking for and that I thought was authentic, um, that would uh, allow me to, to really be my, you know, do my best work do my best learning, um, and be actualized. Uh, and so I, ha- I knew I had this meeting coming up with, with someone you and I both know, know Rennie, and he's a, he's a serial entrepreneur. Um, and I knew that I had it, that this was the guy who would know in DC kind of all the, the, the various companies. And I knew I needed to be prepared for that meeting. And, and I mentioned this because I think you know, as as uh, as a, I'm, I guess I'm speaking to like the veteran uh, uh, pool of people. I can you know sort of picture uh, you know folks who are listening to this podcast, and I would say that those networking meetings are are incredibly important um, 
because one, they could help shape the experience of others can help really inform and shape your, your understanding of yourself in a much better way. And once you do have an idea of what you want, those people can then help steer where you should be looking. And so by the time I sat down with this individual, um, it was really quick. We sat down and uh, he's, you know, he said, what do you want to eat? He goes, actually, don't worry. We're just going to order wings. I've got 15 minutes and that's it. <laughs> okay. So we sat down and he said, what do you want? And at that point, I had done enough to understand generally what I wanted. And I said, I, I would like a, a company in cybersecurity that has between 50 and 100 people. And I need to make this much in salary. And I want to dip my hand in sales or business development side. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a coder. I'm not an engineer. I'm on the other side. And uh, I, I defined that per, those parameters. Um, and he said, okay, I've got the company for you. And he said, I'm going to set up that meeting. That company was Red Owl. And so it would, might seem that, oh, you know, I only had, you know, one interview with one company and that was it. But the, the truth is I had done about a year's work of networking and asking and refining so that when it got to that important meeting with a person I knew would have the connections and, and would have the insight into the various companies out there, uh, um, that I was ready for that. And it, it worked out. Um, it worked out really well. We met... Um, I met with the other uh, founders. We all obviously hit it off, and it was exactly the right um, the right company at the right mm -hmm. time. Right, right, and and just to to pull out one element of of what you just said that that I think bears repeating, which is knowing which person to talk to at what time. So earlier you said. It's so helpful yes. to just ask around, you know, what, what, Hey, True. what do you do? What do You're you right. do? The type of person who has 15 minutes for you, who also knows every single company in the industry you want to be in and whose words would carry huge weight with the executives at a company like that. That is not a person you can go to no. and say, right. hey, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your life. So this is this is a really important distinction that that you were making. Yes. Um, that you were making. And I think it bears bears yeah, repeating. I'm, I'm so glad you clarified that because because it, it, it could seem that I was saying two two contradictory things. You're a hundred you're a hundred percent right. Like that's exactly right. Explore, have deep conversations, long meandering you know, uh, mental walks along, along the beach with, with your close, you know, friends and colleagues, uh, with your family, like refine that there so that when you meet that person who, who, who has 15 minutes and, you know, you're, you're speaking to that person, you, you have a very clear ask. I've been on both sides of that. I mean, I've been, I've been in positions where I've only had 15 minutes and the person wasn't ready. And I know I felt bad. I knew that person. I, w I wasn't able to help that person. They, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't have enough ammunition from them to help them. Uh, and then I've been in on the, right. on, on that side where the person said, I'm looking for this. And I said, oh, well, I can help you with that. 
you know, here's a guy, here's Rennie. Let me connect you with Rennie, right? I mean, Rennie can help right, with that. Right. So um, you're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. It, it's important to be very discriminating with who you speak to and what you speak to them about, because you don't want to blow those opportunities um, when you have that 15 minutes. That is totally right. And let, let anyone listening to this podcast t- take, take note of that because you don't, but when you are the person who blows that 15 minutes, and I have to admit, I was, I was that person we maybe a decade it, ago right, or so, right. you know, you are blowing it too. Yes. You, you know, yes. as the person who only has the 15 minutes yeah. when that executive says, okay, how can I help? What do you want? And in that second, you know, you've, you were not prepared and it is, it, it is, it is, you know, I, I still remember it to this day. So Please learn, learn, learn from Michael. Learn from me. Um, know which person to, to to talk to at what time. Michael, you started a company that 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 I and and you know we we have known each other here for for a number of years now. I don't know if another human being could have started the company you started because it it really took all of your what you are really good at and and your open mind. You made it happen. Please talk about starting Atada, the the novel idea behind it, why you started it, and your your founding team, because you have a a co-founder who really balances out and and is so complementary to your skill set, yeah. Michael. So you know the irony, just to to tie some threads here. So the irony of that person who who recommended me to Red Owl when I shared with that person the idea of this company. Uh, the person said, um, don't do it. Uh, you will not succeed. Um, I, I like you a lot, uh, but this idea will never gain traction. There's no interest in the market. Uh, no VC is going to invest in it. And I, I, I'm, I implore you, give up, <laughs> give up now. <laughs> so this person who I deeply respected, who, who led me to Red Owl and, and was spot on there, was the same person who said, like, do not pursue this. Uh, and I also share that with those listening, that at the end of the day, uh, this is your own private journey, your own private heaven or hell. And at a certain point, as Rennie, as you and I both know, you just got to jump off that. You just got to jump off that bridge, and and uh, and hope for the best. No matter uh, you know how, however prepared or not prepared, there will be people in your life who you respect, uh, who tell you absolutely don't do it. That will absolutely happen, and it won't happen once. It'll it'll happen. It'll happen over and over again. So, I, I think the the real the 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 germ of the germ of the idea uh, for for Atada was the same germ of the idea that I have for for Preta, which is I saw a massive problem that wasn't being addressed. Um, I saw you know with with Preta, I see sales and customer support people being left behind by really complicated technology. And in Atada, I, I saw the same thing. I saw the end user uh, being left behind by this really cool high-end tech for cyber. But the problem was that human beings were the, you know, uh, human beings caused 95% of all breaches. And yet these really high, like high, uh, high-end technologies were not getting at the core of that problem. And so um, the, the, the idea started actually at the Pentagon. I was sitting around a bunch of cyber people and we had to take our, 
our army cyber training, which was, I mean, awful, right? Just imagine the worst cyber training ever and then just multiply that by 10 and then it's the same every year. So that's what it was like. And I, I look around the room and I see that people are doing everything they can to avoid taking the cyber training. And I said, right. I mean, we're at the tip of the spear here. Like these are all cyber people in the bowels of the Pentagon and we can't stand this, this training. Um, we can do better. And so uh, it was really a, a, a hearts and minds campaign to change the way people think about security from thinking about security as something that they have to do and compliance to something that they want to do and a commitment, right? So changing that from compliance to commitment, to me, the way to do that was humor. Uh, and so uh, we, we, uh, with, with humor, with humor, with humor. Yes. Right. So, so modernizing compliance training, which yes. whether you were in the military or not, you know, if you're at any, an organization of any size, you've clicked through cyber trainings and it is, it is not fun. So it's awful. So what we did was humor. we really did change humor. the industry. We, we changed it in two ways. So the first way we changed it is we decided to approach it from a different angle of humor and, and really no one substantial was doing that at the time. The second thing we did was we racked and stacked people um, according to uh, their risk and how they conducted and how they took that training and whether they fell for fish tests, et cetera. And so that that risk score was also something that we brought into the market that was then adopted by, by the industry, by our competitors. And now this risk score and the concept of racking and stacking employees based on their on their cyber risk is, is now uh, in the bloodstream. So um, right. In terms of my partner, you know, I am. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I, I'm in awe of, of entrepreneurs who do this by themselves. I, I really am. I'm in awe of them mm. because the amount of, of 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 juggling and the disparate skill sets that an entrepreneur needs is is so incredible that for it to be for it to all be in one person, it, it blows my mind. Um, and so I'm I'm humbled and amazed uh, and in awe of entrepreneurs who do this on the, on their own. I was very lucky to have a partner uh, who, who, as you had mentioned, very much complimented uh, me. We met in business school. You know, in business school, there are sort of three types of people. At least where, where I went, there was like three types of people. There's, there's the poets, uh, there's the finance people, and then there are the engineers. Um, and the engineers, of course, uh, are the ones who complain about <laughs> <laughs> the poets are suffering. The finance guys are doing and gals are doing great, uh, and the engineers are the ones who uh, uh, probably have it the easiest. But um, uh, I, I found uh, complain or the loudest, uh, loudest complainers. Um, so I was suffering as a poet, uh, and I met uh, Tim, who was on the finance side of the house, and we were we complimented each other. Um, you know, in in many ways, uh, I'm the front of the restaurant. Uh, and he's and he's the back. So um, back of the restaurant. And we built this, uh, you know, terrific company. And then we moved uh, the you know, we were acquired by Mimecast. And then we didn't have to stay at Mimecast. Uh, Mimecast was very generous. Uh, there was no earnout or hand, handcuffs, but we stayed there for two and a half years to 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 grow that business. I then grew their uh, email business uh, and and some others. So you know, we had a. I, I learned a right. ton uh, in in corporate America, and and also learned, um, you know, what I'm supposed to do with my life, which is to be an entrepreneur. Um, and it's, you know, I learned that in my in my uh, 
my mid forties. I actually didn't know it. I didn't know it until, um, I started the second, uh, company. Um, and that's really when I knew what I was supposed to be doing hmm. with, with your life, with my life. And you're saying you didn't necessarily know it with the first one no. because that was no. emergency <laughs> at all times. It was, I mean, it was it, yes. it, it, from the outside, you know, and, and, and again, you, you and I have known each other a while, but from, from the outside, it was, uh, it would be easy to think that those were a few short years and a, a great exit to a, a terrific acquirer where you then became an executive. And it was a really great concept with humor and, uh, and to, to take on human error. But when you're living it from the inside, it's, it's not all straight and, and to the right. Is that, is that fair to say? No, it was pretty easy. Uh, no, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, there's no such thing. I can tell you for sure, there is no such thing as an overnight success. It, they just don't. They just don't happen. I mean, they. I don't think unless like you have some gizmo. But if you're building a, a product, a, a, a hardware product, a software product, if you're if you're building something where there's a desperate need and you're filling a need, um, it, it's still massively hard. And takes an incredible amount of, of, of sacrifice and, and luck. Um, and, and like luck on, are you picking the right partners? Do you have the right team? Um, is the timing right? Product market fit, is that right? Are you able to adjust quick enough? Um, are you getting the right input? Like there's, there are so many, um, you know, the, the, the road is strewn with, with failure uh, and it's all around you. Um, and so, where the military comes in is, is I think this concept of you have to keep moving, right? I remember as a armor right. reading, uh, you know, reading Rommel, you know, uh, attacks and, you know, this for an armor, for an armor person, you know, Rommel is this just an incredible, um, uh, uh visionary and, 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 uh, and, and military thinker. And, and part of, part of the, the, what he was saying is if you're in an ambush, you have to keep moving. <laughs> you have to fight your way out of an ambush. And if you stay right. there, you're definitely not going to get out. And I think being an entrepreneur is very much like that. It, it, it harkens back to all the times I was either on a road march or in a very, comp, you know, in a, in a crappy situation in the military where the lesson was I had just had to keep moving. And if I kept moving, yes. I had a shot. And that was a huge lesson that I learned in the, in the military. And I'll, I'll tell you, it is, it is a, it is a differentiator. Um, veterans have that hmm. keep moving in spades. And I find that many others don't have that. And if, and if you, um, you know, if you served in any capacity, uh, you, you understand that concept and you have it. And it's that grit of moving under fire of moving through adversity, you know, and sometimes it's just blind moving forward, right? But that's, you're still right. moving, right? right? You're still moving. You're still moving. You're still and that's the key. And, and yes. so I know I was thinking about for this call, you know, for the podcast, like what, what's the real, what's the real lesson from the military that I've gotten? And it was keep moving. It's the only chance you have. And then if you, if you stop, mm. uh, you definitely won't, won't get out, uh, you know? And, and so, right. uh, you know, right. that was, Priceless. And what's really neat about that is that that lesson has been true for every job I had in the military, whether I was a, you know, in the 82nd, 
in slogging it um, or, uh, you know, in, in a cubby or, in a, you know, a desk jockey or wherever, like in every military job I've right. had, whether it was on the streets of some Middle Eastern country or, you know, at on a jump zone or in the Pentagon in a desk somewhere, um, uh, every one of those jobs, t- if you kept moving um, and had persistence and grit, you were going to get through it. And um, I, I credit right. the military for, for that. And and Michael, you said that it took starting Preta to to truly realize that what you are meant to do is yes. is be a startup entrepreneur. Yes. Can, please talk about what why you learned that now, what what that means, and why that wasn't as clear when you did Atada, or or why it's doubly clear now in your life. You know, I. I Going to Red Owl and then and then starting Atada, there really was this irreverent pull. I, I can't describe it other than I, I was being pulled in this direction. And I'd love to say that it was an informed choice. I try to make it as informed as possible. The truth is there was just this core pull I had to do this. I have to say when, when I was in Atada, I didn't feel like it was work. I, I mean, I was working very hard, but it didn't feel – I didn't have a weight on me. I had a ton of stress, mm. but there was this other sort of weight um, that I did not have. And right, what uh, you know, I I had an incredible time at Mimecast, and Mimecast was very generous uh, uh, to me, and I had increasing responsibility. the The challenge for me personally was that I wasn't super excited about garnering working laterally. I, I, you know, the, the idea of getting massive consensus across a large swath of people, I'm going to say this generously, was, was not something that I was happy doing or honestly was particularly good at. Like I, I could be good at it, but it, but it wasn't authentic to me. If I if I, right. I am very brutally honest with myself, if I don't know where to go, but if I do know where to go, and I do know the direction, then I want to go there. I don't want to focus. I don't want to have to um, necessarily get a type of consensus for every move. Um, and I felt that with these larger, you know. And by the way, others very close to me love that, and we're very good at it, and are good at it today. And they're thriving. They're thriving. They're they're still at you know these 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 larger companies, and they are doing exceedingly well. Um, and so this right. th- it's a choice. Right. Like there's, I I just I, I you know it's it's almost like when you're a general's aide. I don't know I mean, listening was a general's aide. You know you either go one way or the other. Either you're like doubly in after you become a general's aide, or or you've seen but the matrix and you're now like working your way out. I think in a way, uh, my experience, a, a positive experience in corporate America, uh, and it was global, it was a global company. So in, in, a, in a big corporation, a positive experience was, it made it very clear to me uh, that uh, I love the grit and grind and the struggle of being, of being an entrepreneur and starting something from scratch. That's, that's, what, I was, that's right. what I'm supposed to be doing. One other thing I'd, I'd love to pull out here is, that and and Michael, I know you're now in a place in your career where you get 
asked for both that specific how you can help and also some more general what should I do with myself? And and that said, it's not common for people to really know what they should be doing ever. Most people, many people don't find that or for, 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 for people that are looking for it, it's, it's very helpful to hear from you given your success as an entrepreneur and, and earlier uh, in, in the military and other forms of service that I, thank you for sharing that it, it, it took a while to, uh, it took to over, get to it, that. It took 47 point. years. I mean, that's how really, that's how long it took. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it, I, I, it took a long time. Um, and right. Um, I mean, I think that's where the keep moving comes into play. Right. And don't, I would say to a, to a veteran, you know, with all the sacrifice you've already made, don't settle for, for mediocrity, you know, find that spot that, that you can be yourself in and, and find the, the thing, look, not everything is perfect and you have to make sacrifices. Like there's no question, no job is perfect. There's, I mean, there's things about being an entrepreneur that I don't necessarily love, um, right? It's not, it's not all unicorns and, and pixie dust. But at my core, I feel that I'm I'm doing something I'm supposed to be doing. I'm where I'm supposed to be, and um, in those moments, like everyone has had those moments at work, and so how do you really want to be spending your time? I think is the better question. Not what industry you want to be right. in, but how do you want to spend your time, and how you spend your time, to me, is more dictated on where you are on that S curve for a company's development. That's that to bring this sort of conversation full circle. I find that my job as an entrepreneur in, let's just say a right now I'm in a type of revenue intelligence company. My job as an entrepreneur in a revenue intelligence company is a lot more similar to someone in cyber, in e-commerce, Who's a who's a um, you know early stage entrepreneur? It's industry agnostic. Our daily life is probably very similar, way more similar than you know someone who's in a much more advanced company. Right. So you right. and I, right. right? Even though we're in completely different, in, you know, not completely different, but different jobs, right? You and I have a much more similar daily rhythm. Right than than someone who's working for an IBM, who who's in like a similar right. job, right? But in, in a company that has you know fifty whatever how many people IBM has 50, 60, 70,000 people. So I think that's really important to see how do you want to be spending your time, um, and how do you want to spend your day. A huge part of that is what's the stage of the company that you're going to be in. Well, Michael, th- this has been. Terrific. Thank you for sharing your, Thank you. your professional and, and, and personal journey from service to success as an entrepreneur, now CEO, founder of, of Preta. And again, thank you for, for your time and, uh, and for the insights that you shared. Well, Renny, thank you for, for having me and for also having this podcast. I think it's it's, it's awesome. It's tremendously important. And I know it'll, it'll be uh, helpful for the community. Terrific. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. 